Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Today on Civil War Talk Radio, we have a guest who needs no introduction, and yet will receive one anyway. Gary W. Gallagher is the author or editor of more than 30 books about the American Civil War. He is currently the John L. Now III Professor of the History of the American Civil War at the University of Virginia. Join us today as we talk with Professor Gary Gallagher on Civil War Talk Radio. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. Hear that? You just gotta love that sound. Really, it's one of this country's great treasures. The unmistakable sound of a nice California Chardonnay. There's nothing like it. Well, except of course for the sound of nails pounding lumber, building new homes across America, or steaks sizzling on the grill. In fact, 40% of American products are shipped by freight railroads. From computers to produce, we even carry trucks. Really, chances are the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. 70% of new American cars, 40% of the grain harvest. More Americans depend on us than ever. Freight railroads contribute more than $31 billion a year to the U.S. economy. And since one freight train carries a load of up to 500 trucks, that means less fuel, less traffic. A better environment, a better tomorrow. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. God is calling me. Have you ever wondered about God's views and what is going on in the world? The war in Iraq? 9-1-1? The course that religions have taken in the world? What about natural catastrophes, such as Katrina and the Asian earthquake? Were these acts of God? To find out, come to the new show, God Speaks Now, Dear God's Views on the News and Guidance for Living. Join Ina Maynard and Dr. James Maynard on Sunday at 10 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Just click on Spirituality and Religion. God is calling me. Have a question or comment? To speak to our show hosts or guests during the live show, call in toll-free in North America, 877-514-7300. And from elsewhere in the world, call 001-858-277-1444. Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, speaking from my office at East Carolina University on the eve of homecoming 2005, but not representing the university, its Pirates football team, or the history department, or indeed anyone but myself, and I'm sure the same is true of our guest today, speaking for himself, that is. I'd like to start first by thanking the many contributors in recent weeks I've had to Uh, make the observation that uh, to cover the hard costs of the show, it would help to have some contributions to pay for phone, electrical, and so on. 
the guests and hosts are not uh, compensated for the show. We do it because we're interested in the subject. But there are some uh, real-life economic realities that we cannot ignore. So thank you to those of you who have contributed. If you'd like to join them, please go to the website from which you're hearing this, and there's a button on the front page you can click. Well, the dirty work out of the way. Let us move on to today's guest, Gary Gallagher from the University of Virginia. Gary, are you there? I am, Jerry. Nice to be with you. Good to be with you. Gary, I've been dodging you this fall as best I can. You came here to Greenville to give a talk a few weeks ago, and it was very highly regarded, but I was scheduled that weekend to be in Illinois at a Lincoln meeting, so I didn't hear you that day. Now, I understand you're going to give the Fortinbaugh address this year in Gettysburg. Is that right? That's right. That is a very prestigious address. I'd urge all our listeners, if you're in the area of Gettysburg, Virginia, on November 19th this year, don't miss the 44th annual Robert Fortinbaugh Memorial Lecture. Our guest today, Gary Gallagher, will be giving it. I will be in Gettysburg on the 18th, but business calls me back to Greenville on the 19th, so I'll miss you again. Well, I'll be there on the 18th as well, so you're going to have to be diligent in trying to miss me. I guess the the restraining order is not taking effect then, apparently. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's good. I'm glad we'll get to to sit face-to-face for a minute, I hope. But thanks for coming here and and, and joining me today. Um, uh, I, I was not kidding when I said in the introduction that there really is no need to introduce you. Anyone who reads modern Civil War literature knows your name. You've produced a great amount of material. How did you start your interest in the Civil War? I started very early. I grew up, I was born in Los Angeles, but grew up on a farm in southern Colorado. I moved there when I was very young, and I became interested in the Civil War through some articles that appeared in the National Geographic magazine that anticipated the Civil War centennial. Uh, after reading those, I, I ordered a copy of the American Heritage Picture History of the Civil War, which came out in 1960, text by Bruce Catton. Uh, I bought a copy of that when I was 10. I used my life savings. It was 1995, I'll remember, and that book just captivated me. And from that point on, I've been interested in the Civil War. Uh, do, you, do you remember the maps in that book? By David Greenspan. Of course I do, the picture maps. I I cannot tell you how many guests on the show have had the same experience, and I share it too, of remembering that book, reading it when I was a child, and those maps were just absolutely fascinating. They I took still think right it's the best book to give to young people to get them interested, the best first book. And I like the original edition better than the than the revised edition that came out a few years ago. I, I, I have the revised edition, and it, it didn't have the same magic. I couldn't tell if it's because I'm older now, I've read more now, but the first edition was a magical work. It, it absolutely was, and I've met many people over the years who feel the same way about it. They remember those maps, and I remember certain illustrations in it. There's a full-page reproduction of the famous booted and spurred uh, portrait of Jeb Stewart, for example, in the Seven Days section. And, and I mean, they're just certain. That book just had an enormous impact on me. It, it did. It. it uh... It speaks to how you can cross the boundaries between serious history and, and, and general public interest. Right. And uh, it, it is just a magnificent work. And I, I would agree I would recommend the first edition to anyone who, who hasn't seen it, but that really was a formative work for so many of us. So did you go on to study history as an undergraduate? I did. I, I went to a small uh, liberal arts school in Colorado called Adams State College and uh, got a degree in history there and then went to graduate school at the University of Texas at Austin where I studied Southern history. I mean, my degree is really in Southern history, but I wrote my dissertation on 
uh, a young North Carolinian named Stephen Dodson Ramser, who, uh, who left a great set of letters, several hundred letters that are at Chapel Hill. And so that would have been after the time of the centennial. Yes, yes, it was. I went started graduate school in uh, 1973. And have have you been teaching mostly Civil War type courses since then? Have you? Well, there were there were no jobs as as you may. You're probably too young <laughs> to remember this. There were no. It wasn't a bad job market. It was a non-existent job market in the mid and late 1970s. So I spent 10 years as an archivist at the LBJ Library uh, in Austin, Texas, which was a wonderful job. It was just the wrong century for me. I know a lot more about the Great Society than I really need to know because I've, I've never taught anything. I went on the job market the same year that my son graduated from high school in, in Austin. That was uh, 1985 and got a job at Penn State University where I replaced Warren Hassler, who, a military historian who specialized in the Civil War. And so uh, I taught Civil War courses from the beginning. I began teaching in 86, and I, ever since then, it's been almost 20 years now, I have taught the Civil War in addition to other things, but primarily the Civil War, Civil War era. Yeah. Well, I, I will tell you, I'm, I'm not too young to know that there's there's no job market for historians, and uh, <laughs> unfortunately that continued through the 80s and 90s. I took my first job at the Lincoln Museum rather than teaching for the same reason. You were an archivist rather than a teacher at first. Right. Uh, I got the right century, fortunately, but uh, uh, it eventually one lands on one's feet, hopefully. I will say to any young listeners out there thinking about the Civil War as a career, don't go into the, the Ph.D. track unless you're independently wealthy. Uh, I, I don't see the the future in it. Uh, there's an, there's enough people out there competing already, but enough, enough advice uh, to our listeners. So let me ask you this question. In, in the last... Well, in, in your career, you've seen a huge amount of public interest in the Civil War, certainly since Ken Burns uh, did his production. Uh, the centennial was also a great era of interest in the Civil War. Do you think that interest is staying at a high level today, or is it fading? Is it growing? I think it's at a high level. I've seen huge swings in interest. The centennial was a high point, as you say. That petered out in the mid-'60s, I think. And then Civil War... Uh, the, the field entered a trough, and I think the trough lasted from the late 60s all the way through the 70s, at least until the mid-80s. Uh, the, the Civil War is not something most publishers wanted to touch uh, in the mid-80s. The U University of North Carolina Press, which you know well because you have a very good book published by them, uh, has become the leading scholarly press that deals with the Civil War, but it had not published a title on the Civil War in more than a decade in the mid-80s. They published my dissertation on Ramser. They had stayed away from the Civil War because they thought it was a dead field. Uh, I think in the wake of Vietnam, uh, a sort of uh, an even greater bias than usual against military history in the academy had helped the Civil War bottom out. It came back in the late 80s, I think, because of Jim McPherson's battle cry of freedom, uh, because growing concern I reached newspapers about threats to various Civil War sites, most especially Manassas, and then with, uh, with the movie Glory in the late 80s, and then especially with Burns' series in the early 90s, and then the movie Gettysburg and so forth. It really did have a resurgence in the 90s, and I think we're still operating on that, uh, though it may be waning a bit. It's hard to tell. I think the interest is still high. 
I, I wouldn't want to predict it's going down, not good for you or me professionally, but can it stay this way indefinitely? Well, it's always been, there's always been a wide readership, I think, among interested lay people. Uh, academics are another, another question. Right now, of course, the founders are the hottest thing there is. Those are the books that sell in the millions. Uh, I suspect Battle Cry of Freedom is the best-selling Civil War title, uh, other than uh, Shelby Foote's books uh, that has come out in the last 20 years or so. And it, it sold extremely well, but it doesn't sell the way David McCullough's books sell or the way that uh, some of the other books on the founding generation sell. Now, we have a book coming out this season. We're talking here in the fall of 2005, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin's mm -hmm. new book on Lincoln and his cabinet. Right. Uh, perhaps that will affect that trend. It might. Uh, Lincoln generally doesn't sell. The people think every book on Lincoln sells a ton. They don't all sell a ton. But the, the Doris uh, Kearns Goodwin's book should do as well as any, that's for sure. should do better than almost any other one uh, in our field. be interesting to see. And it will be. Let me ask you a substantive question. I like to start with something nice and easy, just toss up a softball. Like, uh, why did the North win? <laughs> yeah, that's. Do I have thirty seconds to answer Just that? Keep it within ten words. That's right. Uh, there, I think that there are a number of reasons the North won. I think that uh, certainly uh, northern advantages of manpower and uh, industrial capacity and so forth were they were necessary ingredients, but they weren't sufficient. I think you needed those ingredients uh, together with the kind of resolute political and military leadership uh, that would see that those advantages were applied in a relentless fashion in the end and, and would win enough victory soon enough uh, to convince the Confederate people to give up before the northern population decided, civilian population decided that the war wasn't worth it. I, I mean, the key is the civilian population on each side. Which one of those is going to decide first that the war simply isn't worth it anymore? I'm not one of those who thinks that uh, Union victory, or as I like to think of it, United States victory, was uh, predetermined. I think the war could have gone either way. I think that the Confederacy more than once came close to achieving its lower standard for success. All the Confederacy had to do was get a tie to win. All it had to do was convince the people of the United States that it was costing too many lives and too much money. The United States had to... Uh, actively defeat the Confederacy, had to go down and conquer territory and whip the rebel armies to the degree that there was no doubt in the minds of the Confederate people but that United States military power would prevail. I think that's what happened in the end, but, the, but it could have gone either way, and the key in, in, in any case was the civilian populations. Did the southern civilian population lack sufficient nationalism then to... Uh, now, there's a to... slow ball down the middle. You know that I don't think it did. That's right. I think it's very popular uh, to argue that it did. And there's a new book out uh, called A People's History of the Civil War by a guy named David Williams, who certainly, uh, he certainly argues that case as strongly as anyone. I think it's a very wrong-headed case because I think that the Confederate people exhibited uh, almost uh, unbelievable will within an American context. Certainly no other white segment of American society has ever sacrificed nearly as much uh, as the Confederates did. They lost a higher proportion of their, I mean, they lost a quarter of their military-aged men killed, uh, which is a pretty high standard uh, for the United States. No other, in the North it was about 
to much lower standard, and in all our other wars, of course, far lower than that. Now, does that mean all Confederates were on board with the war? Of course it doesn't, just as all people in the United States weren't. I think what happens often is that people, in fact, almost always, is that people begin at Appomattox, knowing the end of the story, knowing the United States triumphed, knowing the Confederacy failed, and so they just work backward through the evidence with that in mind. Okay, the Confederacy failed. Now, why did it fail? Let's look at the weaknesses. And so they come up with opposition to conscription and privation on the home front and class tensions. Uh, this new book emphasizes class tension. Uh, to me, uh, that is not even an interesting question because every society has class tension everywhere and every era. Uh, the question is whether that class tension uh, really plays a crucial factor. Uh, I don't think it did in the Confederacy. Well, one argument that's advanced toward, in, in terms of the thesis that the Confederacy was not sufficiently nationalistic, was not sufficiently strong on the home front, is that Appomattox takes place at all and that that's the end of the war, that Lee tells the men to go home and they go home. Right. Whereas Jefferson Davis, a few days earlier, had issued that proclamation saying, well, fine, now we don't have to defend cities anymore, we move to the next phase of the conflict. We go to the mountains, we go to the swamps, we go to the forests, and there's an example in in uh, the revolution of, of Marion and Sumner doing this kind of thing. Yeah, but Marion and Sumner are not the main military effort by the American colonies. I think that guerrilla war analogy is, is really driven by a post-Vietnam reading of what the Civil War was about. I don't think there's the slightest chance that a society, that a slave-holding society with three and a half million slaves living among its five and a half million white people would try to wage a guerrilla war. There would be no way to maintain social control in a situation like that. And the proclamation of Davis's that is often read as a call for guerrilla warfare isn't that at all. What Davis is saying is that now Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia as an army, as a Confederate military institution, would now be free uh, to operate away from the cities. He's not saying that the, the 50 or 60,000 men in Lee's army would take to the hills. He's saying that Lee and his army would simply be free to maneuver in different ways, and Lee knew that wasn't the case, and so you get Appomattox. Now, one of the implications of your argument here is that when you say that the South could never have resorted to guerrilla warfare because they would lose social control. As a primary national military strategy, of course they right. waged guerrilla warfare, but I mean as their principal uh, method of waging the war. Right. And if they do that, they then they lose control of the slaves, basically. The, That's you what I have. Yeah. law and order. Mm -hmm. Now, that implies then that the fundamental goal of the Confederacy – uh, or, or in, the, in the hierarchy of goals, that preservation of social order and, and preservation of racial hierarchy ranks above national independence. No, I don't think that argues that at all. I think that they, I think the two are tied together. I think I don't have any doubt that slavery is is the critical factor that separates the Confederacy and the Confederate form of nationalism from the United States and the United States form. Uh, the two are tied together, but the Confederacy is the best way uh, when you get to that point of the war, when the United States has gone on record as being against slavery, uh, not only with the Emancipation Proclamation, but with the 13th Amendment and so forth. The Confederacy is really uh, the only hope. I think it's a measure of the and this can be read either way, and historians read it either way. I think the Confederate debate over whether to arm some slaves and give them freedom, if necessary, to win the war, 
uh, suggests a very strong uh, current of Confederate nationalism among many Confederates, but they're not doing that because they don't care about slavery. They're thinking that by doing that, they'll preserve their control over most of their slaves uh, by loosening their control over uh, a few dozen thousand of them, maybe. Lee puts it that very bluntly in those terms. We can either free some of them under uh, our controlled way, or we can, if we lose the war, we lose them all. So which is better? Well, th this is uh, a, a very interesting topic, and we're going to have to take a break for just a minute, but I want to come back to it. Uh, we'll touch on this and other issues in the Confederate uh, hierarchy of goals and the Civil War generally. So we'll take a break and be back shortly with Gary Gallagher on Civil War Talk Radio.